the little boy disappears from a swap meet. Was he abducted or was he ever really there? A sleeping three-year-old disappears from his parents' house in the middle of the night. Did he simply wake up and wander off? A young woman with a bright future makes the move to Reno. Within a year, everything is turned upside down. A wife and mother runs away from a cab company during the early morning hours. Did something sinister happen or did she just need a break? A young couple disappears, leaving behind a two-month-old son. Did they run away together or is it something more mysterious than that? Welcome back to Never To Be Seen Again. Hey everyone, welcome back to another week of disappearances brought to you courtesy of Never To Be Seen Again, the podcast. I, as always, am your host, Laura. Thank you for pressing play this week. Thank you everyone who listened to last week's episode in Connecticut. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, This week, we are traveling from Connecticut to Nevada. We're going to bask in the warm sun as we talk about six cases this week. Let's hit the Nevada stats real quickly. Um, Population as of 2019 is reported as 3.08 million. 49.8% of that population is female, leaving 50.2% of the population as male. Uh, NamUs has 214 listed missing cases in Nevada, with 115 males and 99 females. The Charlie Project has 108 cases, with 64 female cases and 44 male cases. And the Doe Network has 28 female cases and 19 male cases. Now, before we get into the cases uh, I have for you this week, I just want to talk about something really quickly. At the start of this podcast, I made it a point to mention human trafficking and sex trafficking. I haven't really mentioned anything about that in quite a few episodes. I don't want you to think that it's not a really relevant issue in my mind, though. I felt that given the current issue with the child sex rings in the news, I need to say something again. I have covered so many cases in this podcast where sex trafficking is a sadly very possible cause of disappearance. It's not just a problem among children either. It also happens with adults. And if you haven't listened to this podcast from the very beginning, then you probably didn't hear my human trafficking and sex trafficking rant. I urge those who haven't heard it or for those who need to hear it again to go listen to at least the beginning part of episode two in Idaho. I don't want to go over everything again, but I do want you to not forget about this very real possibility that any of these disappearances can be connected to, that this disgusting underworld that is very real. Uh, I, of course, also wanna urge you to be cautious of your surroundings, always be cautious of strangers, and so very importantly, protect all of the babies, even if it's not your child. I mean, don't be weird about it. Just do what you can to keep them safe. If it is your child, be cautious of the people they are around. Don't let, don't let them out of your sight. And if the situation doesn't feel right 
or a person just doesn't feel right, trust your gut and remove yourself and your child. Always be so aware of your surroundings. So I could talk about this issue forever, but I'm here to tell you about missing people. Uh, Maybe in the future, I'll do a bonus episode surrounding this issue, but today we are talking about some missing people in Nevada. So let's go ahead and get into it. As always, all of these cases are on the Charlie Project this week. Okay, I am pretty, uh, well, I don't want to say excited, but excited, but I am pretty happy to tell you about this first case. This is case number 150DMNV in the Doe Network, case number MP6530 in NamUs, and it is a juvenile case, so the NCMEC number is 603393. This is the disappearance of Francilian Pierre. Francilian, or Yo-Yo, as he was called, is a biracial male. His mother is Caucasian and his father is Haitian. And Yo-Yo was actually born in Haiti. He has black hair and brown eyes. He was born on October 1st of 1982 and was only three at the time of his disappearance. He would be 37 now. At the time, he stood at three foot six and weighed 32 pounds. He was last seen wearing a gray short-sleeved sweatshirt with two ivory-colored buttons on the side. So, I'm going to have to give you a little backstory here. Yo-Yo was born to Amy Elizabeth Lester and her husband, Jean-Pierre. Amy and Jean divorced in 1985. And after the divorce, Amy retained custody of Yo-Yo. Not very long after Amy's divorce from Jean, she married a man named Mahalil, or they call him Lee, Luster. Amy, Lee, and little Francilian uh, formed this little family in Nevada. Well, apparently this was not a picture-perfect family because in December of 1985, both Amy and Lee were charged with felony child abuse. Yo-Yo had been beaten so severely by his mother and stepfather that he had 30 to 40 welts on his back. His little back was almost entirely covered in bruises. So Yo-Yo was placed in foster care after this. Amy surprisingly admitted to causing the injuries to Yo-Yo by whipping him with a belt. She claimed that she had whipped him once because her three-year-old son had wet the bed. She claimed she did it again on another occasion because Yo-Yo had started a fire inside the house. Now, Lee also admitted to beating Yo-Yo and causing injury, but the extent of those injuries or what he admitted to is not really clear. In April of 1986, Amy and Lee posted bail and were released from jail with the child abuse charges still pending trial. The child abuse case was still open, but in May of 1986, Yo-Yo was returned to the care of Amy and Lee. Now, this didn't mean that social workers weren't going to keep an eye on the situation, though. Unfortunately, they couldn't. It wasn't because they didn't try, though. You see, when social workers would make home visits to check on Yo-Yo's welfare, Amy would tell them, quote, this wouldn't do, and would refuse to allow them to see her son. 
In July of 1986, history began to repeat itself. Friends and neighbors started seeing bruises on Yo-Yo. Amy would tell them that she had punished him because he had urinated and defecated on the floor and also set small fires inside of the house. Amy apparently also had bruises as well, though. It came out later that she had told close friends that she was afraid of Lee and that he had beaten her on multiple occasions. Lee would also later admit that he forced Yo-Yo to run circles around the coffee table in the, in the house as a form of discipline. He also apparently had forced Yo-Yo to sleep outside for at least one night. A friend of Amy's also noticed that Yo-Yo had a severe burn on his hand and scratches on his face. Amy told this friend that the injuries were the result of an accident and not to worry because they were healing well. Now, as far as the child abuse charges, there was a formal hearing scheduled for August 26th of 1986. Social workers were supposed to make a home visit at least two weeks prior to this hearing, which brings us to August 2nd of 1986. On that day, Lee, Amy, and Yo-Yo head to the Broad Acre Swap Meet in North Las Vegas. It was about 11.30 in the morning when Amy said she stopped at a food stand to purchase something to eat. Lee wanted to buy a bicycle for Yo-Yo. Yo-Yo was at the entrance about six to nine feet away at the time. Um, so while Amy was taking her food to the table to eat and, lay, and Lee was in the bike shop next to the food stand, Yo-Yo just disappeared. Little Francillian has never been seen again. Now, from the beginning, things just didn't seem right. The majority of witnesses at the swap meet on the day Yo-Yo was reported missing said they never saw him there. In fact, no one outside the family claimed to have seen Yo-Yo for at least a week, possibly two weeks, before August 2nd. Also, two people Amy claimed had babysat Yo-Yo just days before his disappearance said they had not done so. Neighbors of the family said they'd seen Amy and Lee leave the house alone on the on that morning um, that uh, Yo-Yo had allegedly disappeared. Also something odd, apparently about a month after Yo-Yo dis Yo -Yo disappeared, Lee and Amy tried to sell some of his toys during a garage sale, which would indicate that perhaps they did not expect him to return. So Lee and Amy looked like suspects from the beginning, and so they were asked to take polygraph exams. Well, they did, and they failed. In December of 1986, they were charged, both of them, were charged with 10 counts of obstruction of justice. Authorities said that they had lied about numerous things, including their background, where they had lived and worked, and the events leading up to Yo-Yo's disappearance. Amy also told police she did not use a babysitter for Yo-Yo, um, and then she later admitted that this was untrue and that numerous people had babysat him shortly before his disappearance. Now, Amy and Lee later pleaded guilty to some of those obstruction charges and admitted to having lied to the police. Amy was sentenced to 112 days in jail, and Lee was uh, sentenced to 180 days. While they were serving their jail sentence, the Lesters wrote many letters back and forth between each other, which correctional officers uh, later seized as evidence. 
They rarely wrote about Yo-Yo or his disappearance in these letters, though. Then, in March of 1987, two witnesses went to the police. Um, they said that during an inmate visit at the jail, they heard Lee tell an unidentified woman, quote, Amy killed the baby, end quote, and, quote, Amy killed him. I know that Amy killed him, end quote. They recognized Lee from his photo in news articles about Yo-Yo's disappearance, so they knew who he was. Now, the Lesters had their own theory about what happened to Yo-Yo. They suggested that Jean-Pierre might have abducted Yo-Yo and taken him back to Haiti. Investigators located Jean-Pierre in Haiti about two and a half months after Yo-Yo's disappearance and searched his apartment. They found no trace of Yo-Yo, though. Jean then traveled to Nevada, took a lie detector test, and passed. Of course, he was ruled out as a suspect. Lee and Amy get out of jail, and then about 11 months after Yo-Yo's disappearance, they moved to Florida. They stated they still believed Jean had taken Francillion, and that the reason they moved to Florida was to be closer to Haiti, where they believed that Yo-Yo was. They also claimed to feel attacked in the Las Vegas Valley. So time goes on and nothing new develops in Yo-Yo's case. They don't find him, they don't have any evidence, and everything they do have leads to a dead end. Then, in 2017, something happened. Something, oh, sometime during that year, police were alerted when someone applied for a birth certificate with Yo-Yo's name on it. This was, reported, this was reported as an attempted identity theft. Uh, this caused police to look back into Yo-Yo's disappearance, and it resulted in something pretty big. So, remember when Lee and Amy were locked up on those obstruction charges? And remember how they wrote to each other? Well, it turns out that those letters that were seized provided more than police thought at the time. One of the letters that was seized as evidence was torn up into pieces. Detectives put it back together though. This particular letter was from Amy to Lee and when they pieced it together, they found what they considered to be damning evidence. In the letter, Amy says, what happened was totally unintentional. I'm sorry, I hope you know that. 60-year-old Amy Luster was arrested in Boca Raton, Florida on January 29th of 2019 for the murder of her son, Francillian Pierre. Now, I'd love to tell you that this is a simple case, but unfortunately, it's not. This 30-plus-year-old case against Amy doesn't have anything new. All they have is the evidence they collected during the initial investigation. There is no DNA, no new witnesses, no confessions. Admittedly, the prosecution has a way to go with this case, but they are pretty comfortable with their arrest and the charges based on what they already have. Amy, of course, pleads not guilty to the murder charges, uh, the murder charge. Yo-Yo's body still hasn't been found, and I don't see Amy confessing to anything. The original trial date was set for January 6th of, of 2020, but I believe that date ended up being moved because the most recent thing I found in regards to this case 
was from January of this year in which Amy requested that her $500,000 bail be reduced to $200,000. Of course, the judge denied this reduction because Yo-Yo's body still hadn't been found. As far as Mahalil is concerned, or Lee, uh, everything I've read suggests that he is still in Florida. No charges have been brought against him to date, but police are not saying that charges won't be brought against him. They are actually being pretty quiet in regards to Lee, which makes me think that they are working on something. This is the oldest case that I'm covering this week, but it is the one that you should be listening for. Ideally, the result is Yo-Yo being found and the people responsible for his disappearance facing punishment. Amy's trial should be starting somewhere in the near future, hopefully. Um, so keep your ears open for that because I really, if you're like me, I'm really curious about what the outcome is going to be and what kind of evidence they bring up at trial. So if you know anything about the disappearance of, of Francilian Pierre or his whereabouts, please contact the North Las Vegas Police Department and provide your information as soon as possible so that true justice can be served. So this next case is also the disappearance of a three-year-old. This case is the only other juvenile case this week. Um, this is case number 482DMNV in the Doe Network, case number MP6047 in NamUs, and NCMEC number 765581. This is the disappearance of Randy Layton Evers. Randy is a Caucasian male with blonde hair and blue eyes. He was born on December 3rd of 1988. And as I mentioned, he was three at the time of his disappearance. He would be 31 now. At the time, he was between two foot 11 and three foot and weighed 50 pounds. He was last seen wearing a black shirt, black pants with a, a blue diamond design on the knees, and no shoes. Randy had a history of severe inner ear infections, and because of this, he had tubes surgically inserted in his ears. He also has a scar near his left eye, or had a scar near his left eye at the time of his disappearance, and his hair had a two to six inch tail in the back. So, <clears throat> it's... February 15th of 1992 between 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. on the 16th. Randy was wrapped up in a blanket sleeping on the living room floor of his family home in the 300 block of East Rochelle Avenue in Las Vegas. Earlier in the evening, the family held a birthday, uh, birthday party for Randy's dad, Mike Evers. Mike, Randy's stepmom Tina Evers and several of the of their friends left the house between 11:30 and 12:30 to head to a local casino. There are differences in this story that say that Mike never went to the casino um, and he instead had passed out in a back bedroom before the group left. In any case, the group left Randy at the home in the company of an adult male, uh, an adult guest at the party who had passed out on the living room couch. When the group got back to the house at around 3.30 a.m. on February 16th, Randy was no longer sleeping on the floor. They searched the house and the immediate area, but they could not find Randy. 
It was thought <clears throat> by some that Randy may have wandered away from the house. This theory was thought to be unlikely by investigators given how cold it was on that night and the fact that Randy was afraid of the dark. Randy's family speculated that he was kidnapped. Authorities initially suspected some of Randy's family members of being involved in his disappearance, though. Here's what's odd. Tina, Randy's stepmom, well, her alibi of her whereabouts at the time of Randy's disappearance reportedly showed small inconsistencies. Not to mention, both Tina and Mike did not participate in the search for Randy. Mike had to be literally dragged out of bed when police told him Randy was missing. Neither Mike nor Tina showed very much interest in Randy's case. Now, Randy's mother, Alexis Menard, uh, Maynard, I'm sorry, had legal custody of Randy at the time. It was initially thought that she may have driven from Southern California to Nevada and took Randy. Investigators later ruled her out as a suspect though. But Alexis said she didn't even know that her son was missing until about a week after he was reported missing. She only learned about her son's disappearance when FBI agents knocked on her door in San Diego. Pretty quickly in the investigation, it looked like investigators were trying to pin down Tina and Mike as suspects. If this was the case, it would explain why they were not cooperative with the investigation into Randy's disappearance. They didn't try to avoid authorities, though. Tina and Mike had another son, and then they left the area and moved to Southern California about four years after Randy was last seen. They divorced sometime after that. Some accounts say that the divorce was in 1997. Police say there have been no reported problems with their other two children, though. Um, there has been a lot of speculation about what caused Randy's disappearance. There were theories that he was sold. Some speculated that he may have been killed accidentally or intentionally by his father and or his stepmother after Mike's birthday party broke up. Uh, some think he was abducted by a stranger or a family member or, as I mentioned earlier, his mother. None of these theories has been substantiated, though. A Nevada grand jury was given evidence by investigators sometime after Randy's disappearance, but indictments were never handed down, were not handed down. Now, I did find somewhere that Mike Evers, Randy's dad, died in 2014 in California. I'm not sure how true this is, though. One final interesting thing. In a media interview in the spring of 2015, a detective investigating the case said he had gotten a hit on Randy's DNA in a database, and he believed Randy is alive and living in Western United States. I could not find anything further on this information, though. I hope Randy is still alive, though. So, due to the confusion as to what happened to him, Randy's disappearance is being investigated as a non-family abduction. I do not get the feeling from reading about this case that investigators are looking at Randy's case as a probable homicide. And maybe that's because of the DNA hit. I'll tell you, though. If you know anything about Randy Layton Evers' disappearance or his whereabouts, 
now uh, please contact the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police and provide them with any information so that this case can finally be closed. If you know where Randy is, if you think you've seen Randy, um, please just report it so that Tina and Mike's name can be cleared and we can really find out what happened to Randy. Okay, so now to the adults. I picked this next case because I found it so very interesting and sad, honestly. Um, this is case number 3393DFNV in the Doe Network and case number MP203 in NamUs. This is the disappearance of Star Michelle Palumbo. Star is a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. She was born on March 29th of 1975 and she was 25 at the time of her disappearance. Uh, she would be 45 now. She stood at five foot four and weighed 115 pounds. She was last seen wearing black, a black leather jacket, a tank top, jeans, and boots. Star has a birthmark on the right side of her neck and her ears were tr triple pierced at the time. So I have to tell you about some backstory about Star. So until 1999, Star was living in Tucson, Arizona with her family. Then in 1999, Star moved to Reno, Nevada to live with her grandmother. Star found a job in a pawn shop at the, um, and that's where she, I'm sorry, and that's where she was working in 2000. Now, from what is understood, once Star moved to Reno, she became involved with drugs. Apparently, she found herself addicted mostly to methamphetamines. Star's friends said that eventually her income from the pawn shop was not enough to support her growing drug habit. It is believed that because Star needed additional income to support, her, support said habit, that she turned to sex work. So, let's start with April 25th of 2000. On that day, Star called her mom. Star's mom said that her daughter seemed paranoid during the conversation. Her, her mother said that Star believed that she was being followed and that her phone was being tapped. During the course of their conversation, Star also mentioned to her mother that she was thinking about moving back to Arizona soon and wanted to make a new life for herself. So let's fast forward a few hours to right after midnight on the morning of April 26th. The setting is the Reno Tahoe International Airport. A young woman was seen in a restricted area of the airport. The woman appeared to be disoriented and scared. Now, when airport police finally locate her, she is cowering near a truck. When they make contact with this woman, she identifies herself as Star Palumbo. She tells the police officer that she was trying to find her younger sister who was running around on the tarmac. The officer, of course, did not believe her story, but based on her behavior, he didn't believe she had any criminal intentions. He believed that she was hallucinating. So at around 1.30 that morning, he dropped her off at the entrance to the Hilton Hotel and Casino. She was last seen at the entrance of the building near the valet parking area. She never checked into the hotel, and she has never been seen again. The following day, April 27th, Star's vehicle was found illegally parked 
and abandoned at the airport. Most of her personal belongings were inside the vehicle, including her cell phone and purse. Inside her purse was $600 in cash, untouched. They also discovered something else that was interesting. She had left behind three emails addressed to the White House. Those emails stated that she believed federal government was attempting to murder her. Also inside the vehicle was a drawing of a woman fitting Starr's description. The drawing depicted the, depicted the woman bound and gagged. But also in the vehicle, they found two books that specialized in changing identities. Once Starr goes missing, her parents traveled to Reno to look for her. They made flyers and handed them out all over the city. This may have eventually paid off. About eight months after Starr disappeared, the owner of the Silver Dollar Casino in Elko says that she saw Starr. She said the woman, um, the woman she believed was Starr looked frightened. She told the owner her name was Starr and that she was being chased by a pimp. The woman became even more nervous when a man peered into a window. A short time later, Starr left the casino with an unknown woman. Unfortunately, police are unable to confirm that this is a legitimate sighting of Star. There have been no other publicly reported sightings of Star after this one um, at the Silver Dollar Casino. Now, there are, of course, plenty of theories about what happened to Star. Some people believe that she is, uh, was, or is suffering. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Some people believe that she was or is suffering from an organic or drug-induced psychosis and she just doesn't know who she is or where she is. There is, of course, also suspicion of foul play. This theory revolves around her drug use and possible involvement in sex work. There have been some rumors that Star died of an overdose and that her body was dumped somewhere in a desert. As far as those two identity books that were found in her car, well, according to Star's friends, Star was trying to change her identity in order to hide from people that she owed drug money to. What is not known is if she successfully changed her identity and went into hiding. It is also not known if the people she owed money to are considered suspects, if in fact she did owe money and authorities have identified that person or people. 20 years later, Star is, of course, still missing. She was a young woman with so much ahead of her um, at the time of her disappearance. It took a move to Reno in a year to completely derail her future. It may not be too late to get Star back on track, though. So if you know anything about the disappearance of Star Michelle Palumbo, or if you think you know where she may be, please contact local law enforcement, or you can contact the Reno Police Department. Okay, so sadly, this next case is familiar to the last one. It's even in Reno as well. Uh, this is case number MP170 in NamUs the disappearance of Jennifer Raylene Casper Ross. Jennifer is a Caucasian female with brown hair with blonde highlights and brown eyes. She was born on April 30th of 1975 and was 30 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 45 now. 
She stood at five foot nine and weighed 130 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen wearing a tan sweater, blue jeans, a wedding ring, a navel ring, and no shoes. She was also carrying a red shoulder bag. Her ears are double pierced. She has a tattoo of the initials JG on her left foot. She had previously fractured a previously fractured tailbone and she has also had extensive orthodontic treatment. She also goes by Jen. Once again, let's talk about some backstory. So Jen was raised in Pocatello, Idaho. She began dancing at an early age, and by the age of 15, she was a very talented ballerina. Um, she performed at local events at that age. By the age of 19, she had earned a spot in Gregory Thompson's productions as a dancer at Harris Casino, at Harris Reno Casino and Hotel in Reno, Nevada. She attended Truckee Meadow Community College and then transferred to the University of Nevada at Reno. There, she was on the Dean's List and majored in veterinary medicine before she changed her major to biomedical engineering. She also tutored in physics and mathematics. She was only one year away from completing her degree at the time of her disappearance. She had dreams of finding a cure for autism or cancer. In March of 1999, when Jen was 24, she married a man by the name of Sean Ross. Sean mixed the sound and controlled, mixed the sound and controlled the spotlight for Jen's performances. Four years after they married, they welcomed a son named Isaac Michael. After Isaac's birth, Jen developed postpartum depression. This is about the time that Jen developed an, an addiction to drugs and alcohol. It seemed like Jen's life was right on track, but things in life never go that smoothly. By 2005, 30-year-old Jen had broken her tailbone practicing for a show. Because of this injury, she ended up losing her job at Harris. Jen losing her job caused financial problems. She did work as an exotic dancer after her termination from Harris, but uh, because of her substance abuse issues, she ended up being fired from several places. Jen soon maxed out all of her credit cards and did not have any income. Also, Jennifer had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and had been hospitalized several times for her mental illness because sometimes it would cause suicidal tendencies, hallucinations, and bizarre behavior. But as the stress got worse, Jennifer tried to cope by using drugs and alcohol. At the time of her disappearance in 2005, it was mostly alcohol. She was also on psychotropic medications uh, that very often she would mix with the alcohol. Now let's go back to May 4th of 2015. Sean came home that evening and found Jen drunk, saying she needed to leave. She had her belongings and her family photos packed up. Sometime after 11 p.m., Jen, Jen left her home in Reno and headed to a local bar about a mile away. Jennifer's husband, Sean, later told police that he told Jennifer not to leave because it was already so late, but she didn't listen. She left the house and headed to the Peppermill Hotel and Casino. She was seen at the Peppermill because the staff and guests would recall by the time that she had arrived at the hotel bar, 
she was already highly intoxicated. They also reported seeing self-inflicted cuts on her arms and wrists. The next morning, on May 5th, at about 5.30, Jen took a cab from the Pepper Mill to Reno Sparks Cab Company. She went there because that's where her mom worked. When Jen didn't real what Jen didn't realize was that her mom was scheduled off that day, so she wasn't there. According to the employees that were there, when Jen realized her mom wasn't at work, she got spooked and ran out. Jen ran out of the building and jumped over a fence behind the building. Now, her running off might seem weird, um, but if you take into consideration that Jen didn't have money to pay the cab fee from the pepper mill to the cab company, um, the cab company uh, where her mom worked at was only one mile from Jen's house, then it might explain why she ran off, just because she couldn't pay the bill. So she never made, or not that we are aware of, um, Jen never made it back to her, to her home only one mile away. Um, the next day, May 6th, Sean reported his wife missing. Police quickly launched into uh, their investigation. They call out cadaver dogs that were able to trace Jen's scent from behind the building back to the road, but then the dogs lost the scent. An employee at the cab company later found Jen's broken high heel, high heel shoes on the company's property. Jennifer was nowhere to be found, though. During the early stages of the investigation, Sean found two bloody notes inside his and Jen's house. The notes indicated Jen's hopes that Sean would continue to care for Isaac if anything would happen to her. Police take these notes and run some tests and were able to determine that Jen wrote the letters and that the blood was Jennifer's. Now, what remained unknown and is still unknown to this day was when the notes were written and under what circumstances. What was later discovered was that just a few minutes before Jennifer went missing, she called her father in Las Vegas. She told him she needed to go there to that city. As far as anyone knows though, she never arrived there. So at first, Sean fully cooperated with the investigation into his wife's disappearance, but then he took a polygraph test and failed it. After he failed the polygraph, he refused to return for a second interview. Then, three months after Jen's disappearance, Sean filed for divorce. At some point, Sean, Sean moved to San Diego, California, where he raised Isaac. It is said that authorities consider Sean and at least one other unnamed person as persons of interest in Jen's disappearance. The issue in Jen's case, as it is in most of our cases, is that there is no body. There are not even one, they are not even 100% sure that Jen isn't alive. Of course, her family believes that she must be dead because she would have never left Isaac, but there is no evidence to prove anything one way or another. So, if you know anything about the whereabouts of Jennifer Raylene Casper Ross or anything about her disappearance, please contact the Reno Police Department. So the last case for this week is a double disappearance. Let's talk about the 2012 disappearance of Philip Glenn Johnson Jr. and Abby A. Roberts. 
Abby is case number MP18122 in NamUs, and Philip is case number MP18064. Let's talk about Abby first. She is a Pacific Islander female with brown hair and brown eyes. Um, she's actually Samoan. She was born on April 3rd of 1987. She was 25 at the time of her disappearance, and she would be 32 now. She stood at five foot three and weighed 125 pounds. She has a few tattoos. Uh, the names Simba and Michael are tattooed on her wrist. She has a tribal tattoo on her left wrist as well. She also has the words respect and loyalty on her torso. Now, Philip. Uh, he is an African-American male with black hair and brown eyes. He was born on August 5th of 1985. He was 27 at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 35 now. He stood at 5'5 five five and weighed 175 pounds. Philip has a hernia scar on his abdomen. Okay, so this is going to be a short yet very mysterious case. So Abby and Philip had been together for about a year before their disappearance. They worked together at the U.S. Postal Service. They lived together in Las Vegas, um, and Abby had just given birth to their son. He was only two months old when his parents disappeared. Abby was last seen at home in Las Vegas on September 29th of 2012, although some accounts give a different date. Some accounts will say that it was October 1st. About a week passed, and Abby and Philip hadn't gone to work. So when Abby's family couldn't get a hold of her and work said that neither of them had been showing up, Abby's family asked police to conduct a welfare check. Now when police get to the home in Las Vegas, they discover that the house is vacant. Then on October 3rd, Philip showed up in Torrance, California. He was in his and Abby's unregistered 2012 black Chevy Cruze. Philip's mother lives in Torrance, California, and that is where he was last seen. He showed up that day to visit with his mother, or that evening, uh, he showed up and visited with his mother, and then he left his, his and Abby's two-month-old son, as well as his child from a previous relationship with his mother, before leaving. Abby wasn't with him, though, as far as anyone could tell. The car, the car that he was in or was eventually located. It was found in Compton, California, but what if any clues were inside that car is not being released to the public. On October 9th, both Abby and Philip were officially reported missing. Now, here's where it gets a little sticky. Although there is no evidence of foul play and no suspects have been officially named, Abby's family believes that Philip may have hurt Abby. Her family was aware, apparently, that Abby was planning on leaving Philip because she believed he was being unfaithful. What surely doesn't repress this theory is that just before Philip disappeared, he had purchased a metal trash can. That trash can was kept in the garage. But when Abby and Philip disappeared, so did the trash can. What was left in its place instead was scorch marks on the garage floor and ash and soot stains on the ceiling. This, of course, leads everyone looking at it to believe that something was burned in that metal trash can. From what I understand through my research, Abby and Philip's son is being cared for by Abby's aunt. He would be around eight now, and he has no answers about what happened to his parents. 
Abby and Philip's disappearance uh, disappearances are definitely suspicious, but investigators have worked tirelessly throughout the years to make any sense of it. They have not been successful to this point. If you know anything that could help solve this disappearance and give a little boy some answers about what happened to his parents, please call the Las Vegas Police Department and provide any information that you may have. Okay, so I haven't done a scene again in a while, but I did find one for you this week. It's a short one, but one that I found kind of cute. On Monday, October 8, 2012, Douglas County Sheriff's Office announces that they are searching for an 11-year-old uh, Gardnerville boy. Uh, Eric Centino lived on Toller Lane with his parents and older brother. He was seen at his home by his father around 7.45 a.m. Eric never made it to school, and when his parents were notified of his absence, they attempted to locate him. But when they couldn't find him, they contacted the police. Sometime later that day, it was announced that the search for Eric was over. 11-year-old Eric was found safe, hiding under his bed. Now, I don't know the backstory here, but I have to think that Eric just had a case of the Mondays and simply didn't want to go to school. Maybe, though, it would be easier to just spend the... He maybe thought <clears throat> that it would just be easier to spend the day under his bed instead of actually going to school. I like this story, but I have to imagine after the initial relief of finding him, his parents were so mad. And poor Eric probably never hid under his bed to avoid school again. So that is it for episode 30 in Nevada. I hope that you enjoyed listening. These were some really good cases this week. Truthfully, I had a very difficult time selecting cases for this week because there are so many good cases in Nevada. Now it's time for my weekly spiel. Um, if you haven't done so already, please like, follow, favorite, rate, and or review this podcast on whatever platform you listen on, if any of those are an option. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher listeners, can I ask you to do the extra favor of giving me or giving this podcast those five stars? Say whatever you want in the review. The stars are what is apparently most important for the algorithm. If you aren't doing so already, go find the podcast Facebook page and like it and follow it. It's at NTBSA Podcast. There I post the photos of the missing I cover in each episode. I also let you know when episodes are up, although sometimes I am a little late with it, and I do apologize for that. Um, you can also send case suggestions via Facebook. Um, but if you don't have Facebook, no worries. You can email me with any case suggestions that you may have at never to be seen again podcast at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening this week, weeks before, in the past, in the future. I appreciate everything you do for this little podcast. I hope that you continue to tune in every week to hear more about those never to be seen again.